Howdy, friends. Welcome to the XD Podcast, a show that explores how design shapes the way we experience brands, products, services, and our everyday lives. As usual, I'm your host, Tony Dosat. Whether you're joining me for the first time or have come back for more, I want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. And if you find value in this show, I would be honored if you took a moment to share this episode, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening, or left a review. It's always greatly appreciated. And with that, what do you say we just jump right into the interview? Okay, here we are with John Sandruck. First of all, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, before we get started and sort of diving into topics here, can you give me a little background about you, where you come from, all the good stuff that got you here? Yeah, um, sure. I was born outside of Baltimore. Actually, I was born in Baltimore. I grew up outside of Baltimore, um, kind of between Baltimore and the Pennsylvania line. I went to art school at a tiny public uh, college at the time. It's now a university called Shepherd University in the panhandle of West Virginia. Um, out there in the foothills. It was pretty great. Pretty scenic. Oh. And then I lived there and established a freelance design practice after school. Uh, I went into business with one of my professors and we had a little design business um, for about a year and then he left and I kept going and then started dating the woman who's now my wife. We moved here in 2003 to be closer to her parents. Um, and then I established a business here, and I did that for like eight years. Uh, and then I got a job after we, well, while we were pregnant with our second kid. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So I avoided it for a nice long time, having a real job. <laughs> was, was the move to get like sort of the more traditional paycheck because of the kids? It's the health insurance, man. Health insurance oh, yeah. when you are self-employed and like a member of multiple like high-risk groups is like really expensive. Um, so it was a lot. Like getting a regular job really, really used a burden. Um, uh, I don't know if you know Jimmy Ball. Uh, I don't think so. He was he was the president of AIGA Dallas for a little while. Um, that's how I know him, and he um, he was working for a mobile design studio at the time. And they approached me to design a, um, an options trading uh, app for the iPhone. And what was supposed to be like a four-month contract turned into a full-time gig and benefits and all that fun Sweet. stuff. So, you know, it was one of those things where I decided not to look a gift horse in the mouth and just take the health insurance. When were you at Sabre? I think we were there different times. I was there from two, January of 2013 until uh, June of 2016. What department were you in there? So I worked for TN, the Travel Network. That's uh-huh. the part of the company that runs the global, the global distribution system. And the um, our big product is the Sabre Red Workspace. It's the point of sale interface for travel agencies. Yeah. Um, I worked on the iPad version of that point of sale. I worked on, we had an internal community thing, like a Facebook for travel agents, sort of self-help community. Um, worked on that. And I worked on Get There for a little while. My big things were Dev Studio, their developer portal. So I was like the uh, design leader for that and actually did most of the front end coding, which is kind of wild. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, like I have a really surprising amount of code in production for a designer, um, especially given like a big IT shop like that. Are you self taught 
for code. For code, yeah. Yeah, so I started uh, building websites in the mid-90s, actually kind of the early 90s. Like, I remember Netscape, like, I remember Mosaic. I wasn't designing websites then. Netscape version 2 was the version where you could put background images on things. Oh, yeah. And that was was the floodgates right there. Uh, So my friend Wes and I would would design and build websites. For Angel Fire? uh, No, I did GeoCities. GeoCities? Yep. This is OG stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and then I would like take breaks from it and come back. So it's like learning many other things. You kind of get better at it if you take a break and come back to it. And um, yes, yeah, so like the, the most recent thing that I did any serious coding on was Dev Studio. And I really had to learn JavaScript really well. Like we didn't, the system we were using, the content management system didn't allow for, um, like proper page templating. And so what we did instead was they gave us a line where they let us put JavaScript of our own in the content management system. And we just used that as a backdoor to like reformat the page entirely and build the experience entirely by like rebuilding the DOM on the fly. Dang. Yeah. Which none of our developers wanted to do. They were just like, that's crazy. We're not going to do that. So, so I did it. (laughs) You're at USAA now. Yeah. What do you got going on there? Oh man, so many things. Um, you know, USA is huge. They've made a m- massive investment in design over the last few years. They hired a chief design officer um, and have built a like office of the chief design officer, the organization that we call CDO. Um, they've staffed up in Austin and in Plano, uh, and of course in San Antonio, where they're based. Um, for a little over a year, I guess I was one of the design directors working on auto experience, which is their, they have a car buying service. Um, and then they they were also building a like sort of maintenance portal. Like if you think of your car as a financial asset, how do you manage it and kind of optimize the, the money that you put into it? Okay. Um, and then my team shifted into some backend stuff for PNC for the insurance organization, right? So uh, USAA is an insurance company and a bank and a financial services group. Um, and auto experience was sort of this weird, like in between, between the bank and the insurance company, it benefited both, both parts of the company and they sort of joint funded it. Um, so we, we got peeled off to work on this thing that I kind of can't talk about in, <laughs> in the insurance space. Um, it's, it's interesting work. A lot of it is, uh, you know, what would really be classified as service design. So it's a little bit of a stretch. Like when you're hiring up designers, it's, there's a lot more graphic designers, a lot more UI designers than there are service designers and yeah. sort of like, like kind of classically typified UX designers out there in the market. Um, so it's been an interesting transition for some of the people on my team to kind of flex their, their skills or like people who were like, I have a member of my team who came straight out of college with a BFA in graphic design, just like me. Uh-huh. Um, and, but she's like, they don't, they don't teach you service design when you're getting There's going to be yeah. a lot more of that, isn't there? There has to be. Especially how technology is evolving. Well, and, you know, it's funny because it's, it's like everything old is new again, right? Like if you look back at um, like what design meant in the 60s, you had guys like Buckminster Fuller working on like design science stuff. Um, and so design was not as much about aesthetics at that point than it was figuring out the problem, like finding identifying problems and then coming up with novel solutions for them. Um, 
which I feel like design is becoming that again. Yeah. But in the meantime, there was this period where, like, and I feel like there's been multiple waves of this where it's gone from like, oh, design is a problem solving discipline to, well, design is really about the production that a specific technology allows. Uh, and so like there's been this massive shift towards what we kind of you know, call UX design. I used finger quotes there for everybody, yeah. <laughs> for everybody who can't see me. Um, after the advent of the iPhone, right? Like smartphones got good. All of a sudden software needed to be pretty massive influx of UX designers. But before that, it had really been dictated by desktop, desktop publishing. Um, and so there was like when I went through school, we were learning how to do page layout. For, for print. Right. Uh, even though the web was becoming a thing and I was actually already working on the web, like nobody was teaching it to designers. They were teaching it in computer science, but that was about it. When I first started in design, I thought Dribble was really great. And uh, <laughs> I might get a lot of slack for this, but I think it's a detriment. <laughs> yeah, designers. no, I'm right there with you. And I probably am going to get hate for this, but I really do. And I and I look and I see how many like favorites and likes and stuff that um, a lot of the designs get. And I will leave a comment like I think Dribble should be like a, a real a, a place for constructive criticism. And thinking about like who's the user? Like, can you tell me anything about any problem you're solving? But the thing is, it looks gorgeous. And it has like these gradients and like these all these like tricks and stuff, but it means nothing. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. And I, I do like I get shade from especially younger designers. I feel like um, we like we had somebody in the studio at, uh, up in Plano who was like really obsessed with getting not obsessed, but was really irritated that USA wouldn't allow us to have like a studio dribble and like all contribute to it. Right. Um, but USA is a fairly conservative organization in that regard, right? Like we we protect our IP, but um, yeah, he was like really disappointed when I was like, yeah, no, I don't think that's important like <laughs> at all. Um, and part of that is fueled by you know, like what you're saying, right? We have no idea what the expectations are, or if this fits the user's purpose. Like it doesn't, it's not designed in a problem solving sense most of the time. There are certainly exceptions to that. Yeah. Um, but it's this weird popularity contest. It's like, it's like Instagram for design where it's like we just want to show the best prettiest version of the thing and uh, just not a whole lot of depth there and I don't have much patience for that like at all um, I don't think that's what design is about it trivializes the industry in my opinion yeah it, it trivializes to me the most valuable part of the industry yeah which is the problem solving discipline on your LinkedIn because I do stock people yeah you have a quote that says, we are called to be architects of the future, not its victims. What does that mean to you? Uh, so I initially put that up. Uh, it's a quote from Buckminster Fuller, who's like one of my like favorite design dudes of the past. He's just called wild, interesting weirdo. Um, and I, pu I put it up because I think that, especially as designers, like we have a responsibility to shape the future into something that um, benefits us, like to benefits us as a whole. Um, and not just let it happen to us, like, which would be very, very easy to do. Like, it would be very easy to just kind of like take it as it comes and not really be deliberate about the way that we move into the future. Um, what's interesting about that is that as I was doing research about that quote, I found the rest of it and the rest of it, which I do not remember verbatim, basically says it's our responsibility as designers to 
plan for the people who can't participate in the design process. Like it's our it's our responsibility as architects of the future to take into account the people who can't participate, the people whose voices will go unheard. And like to me, I think especially like right now, what we've got it's become a very, very, you know, it's at the forefront of everybody's mind, the topic of diversity and inclusion, um, you know, unconscious bias, ethics. Like, we we do have a responsibility as as architects of the future. Like, many of us have, have either chosen to be or have been chosen, like, by the establishment to be the architects of the future. Like, it's our responsibility to, to take to care of the people that we're designing for, which I think represents a really interesting ethical challenge to much of the design industry. Most of us are focused on making our customers happy and not necessarily doing what's kind of best for everybody. It's a shame. Like, it's a shame how often we end up having conversations with our customers, our internal stakeholders, our um, even the technologists that help us build stuff, like every, everybody involved in the process that are really like okay, I, I can accomplish, like, I can design a button that'll make this happen. Like, I can, I can design a form or a controller and interaction that will, like, push the user to do this thing. I can be in complete control of the, like, I know the cognitive biases that are going to come into play. I know the logical fallacies that are going to, that they're, they're going to be mired in. And I can manipulate that to make people do whatever I want as a designer. That's my gig. But should I? Yeah. It's a tough question you have to ask yourself. And especially when a lot of organizations, I mean, take, for example, the, the idea of the, all, all the times that you hear a ding or a buzz on your phone and it's a like, you know, it's, it's, it, it's creating sort of this um, addiction. Yeah, I mean, the dopamine loop. Yeah. And um, not that when it first was created, designers had any idea that that would be the case, but it, it, it is apparent now. Yeah. And... I've I've actually been thinking a lot about this about the burden of is it is it going to be on the designer or is it on the individual? And I think a lot. I mean, it's to talk about you know, for example, like alcohol. Obviously, there's an age limit. You have to be 21, right? Because it's highly addictive. Well, the true the same thing was true with cigarettes too, right? And that's why like you know, like Camel got well. Yeah, I don't know how they're doing financially. I don't really follow cigarettes, but they got right. they got sued right in the '90s or whatever for deliberately marketing to children. Essentially, I don't think design's that far behind, is it? No, and actually, uh, Mike Montero gave a really really good talk about Facebook's firearm sales policy, which is basically you can't sell firearms on Facebook. However, they do like nothing to support to actually enforce that and it was actively gamed by users and people complained and then you know the well mike's case was that people inside of facebook were actually actively subverting the community that was trying to police it for them like they created a system whereby the community would police it for them and then when the community policed it for them they actually chose to do nothing about it because they didn't really want to enforce the policy and i think mike had a really really good point which is that Regardless of whether we intended it or not, the system works the way that it was designed to work. And so if the system is unfair or if it's not working, like it's incumbent upon us as designers to tackle that problem. If we know that we've created something that people get addicted to and it's bad for them, we need to address that. We can't continue to follow the metrics. We can't say like, well, you know, we get paid based on platform engagement. And so as long as those platform engagement numbers are going up, we're doing our job. How do you tell that to someone who's running the company who, <laughs> who, you know, their, yeah. their goal is we want like, you know, they say sticky, we got to make this thing sticky. Right. 
you know, we got to keep them in the app, keep them opening it, all this stuff. How do you combat that? So I think the only way to have a business argument or the only way to have an argument with a business person is to have a business argument with that person. Um, we have to eventually be able to build a case that it's actually like bad for their business over time. Um, and sometimes that's easier than others, right? Like I've, I've been successful in arguing with business owners that like traffic is not the best metric or really what you have to do is say, okay, like, I understand you want to improve this metric, but like, is that really the metric that matters to you? That's the really tough thing, right? And then you have to figure out like, what do you measure instead? At USA, I'm actually pretty lucky. The, the, the metrics that we measure tend not to be like the easy financial stuff, but we measure NPS, overall satisfaction, member satisfaction, and those are those are all pretty useful things. Although, although I would argue that NPS is like really like if you're trying to grow, that's a good thing to measure. But otherwise, it's maybe a bad proxy for something else. I have a, one more tangential thing, and then I end on the a question I ask everybody. Will you tell me what is Batman a day? <laughs> Uh, so a Batman a day, it started because I was, um, so I, I live like 28 miles from my office, right? If I commute during the wrong part of the day, it is horrible. Oh yeah. If I commute in the right part of the day, it's like 35 minutes, no big deal. Listen to a podcast. So I usually hang out at my office for about an hour and like do AIGA stuff and then I go home. One day during a meeting, I started doodling Batman. Because that's what I do, like, uh, I actually went to art school thinking that I would become a comic book artist and then, like, found design and oh, no went kidding. in a very different direction. We're, like, weirdly related to our previous bit of conversation, I, I found that design had tremendous power to shape people's understanding and was like, oh, this is, this is cool. Like, this is, this is something that you have to be responsible to wield. Um, and I was good at it, so I went into design. Because comics is like wildly competitive and you don't make very much money unless you're like Jim Lee. Right. So yeah, I, I, I can draw Batman in about five minutes like with a marker on a whiteboard or 10 seconds with a, with a Sharpie on a post-it or whatever. So I figured like, ah, this is something I can just do. And I did it like every day for a while. Uh, and I had gotten up to about 20 or 30 of them before I started posting them online. Like I was just taking pictures of them and like sending them to people in Snapchat. Like, hey, look at my Batman for the day. Uh -huh. Um, and then my wife was like, you should put those on the internet. So I started putting them on the internet. Um, and it's really, it's a thing where it became a thing where, um, I've always been a doodler. I pay better attention when I'm doodling uh -huh. so I don't mess with my phone, but I've been a doodler since I was a kid. And so then I started like getting it. I started doodling in meetings and then I started getting a more and more elaborate drawing kit that I carried with me everywhere. <laughs> and I would like go into a meeting, um, pull out my drawing kit, which was a variety of black markers and brush pens and little rulers and protractors and like drawings got more and more elaborate. You know, it, it might be because I have an older brother, but I was always a Robin fan. Yeah, I can see that. Like my six-year-old is in like love with Luigi, not Mario. Oh yeah. Luigi. He loves that he's a little brother uh -huh. and that he's taller than Mario. Because Ben, is, my six-year-old, will probably end up being taller than my nine-year-old. Like he's just—he's just huge. Um, yeah, he's like, yeah, nope, I'm that guy. I'm not—I'm not Mario. I'm Luigi. I always liked the uh, the underdog. Yeah. So me and Ben have that in common. What's next for you? What are you? What are you thinking about right now? Oh man, right now, 
I have, so I finished my term as president of AIGA DFW last year, taking on a role as treasurer. I've been kind of enjoying uh, still being involved with the chapter, but like kind of tailing down the uh, like day-to-day, like all of the things involvement. Um, I <clears throat> spent a lot more energy on my kids in the last couple of years. Um, there was a period in time where, when I was at Sabre, when I was working on very, very large projects that required that I travel for research and, you know, all that stuff. And so, like, I'm kind of enjoying the respite that comes with not being involved in the travel industry. And, like, and it's, it's this new phase where, like, my kids are big enough to do my nerd stuff with me. Um, That's a cool feeling. It's so awesome. It's so <laughs> great. Well, let me jump into my final question. Sure. And it might be influenced by what you've been talking about. I ask everybody the same thing. It's what non-digital thing that you own has had the most impact on your life or means the most to you? Non-digital thing. It's a it's a head scratch. Yeah, it really is. So, like, because I actually really have an affinity for like um, mechanical designs. Like, okay, so this is not my answer, but. I carry this thing with me everywhere. Oh, what is that? It is the best design object that I own. It's a knife. It's also a money clip, but it's just... Oh, it's like a little box cutter It's a little box thing. cutter. It takes an interchangeable blade. It's a, it's a cross blade lock. Like, it's a little pocket knife thing, and it folds down into a completely smooth stainless steel rectangle. Oh, wow. And I, it's one of those things where, like, I never carried a knife because carrying a knife is, like... I don't know. It just seems a little bit weird. I was a Boy Scout, and I used to carry a pocket knife all the time. It's just, I don't know. Stop doing it. But this thing is, like, so profoundly well-designed. It's functional. It's utilitarian. It's pragmatic. Like, it's, it's weirdly beautiful in its own way, and then also has this interchangeable, totally disposable box knife blade instead of having it being integrated into the knife in a way that I'm like, that's fantastic. Like this is the, isn't that something? Yeah. I love stuff like this. I love like tea kettles, bicycles, like anything that's like, oh yeah, like this has seen some iteration and some refinement, but the mechanisms are basically the same as they were a hundred years ago. I love that crap. Way back in the day when I was about oh seven or eight years old, um, I was in Beeville, Texas, a very small town, and visiting my grandfather. Went to his church. And uh, I got this envelope in Sunday school when we were little kids. And I was trying to open it, and I was, I guess, outside the church. And the pastor comes up to me, and he says, oh, you need some help there. And I said, oh, yeah, I can't open this. And he takes out a pocket knife. He opens it. And then he looks at me right in the eye and says, son, every good man carries a pocket knife. (laughs) And I've carried one ever since. Yeah, that's one of the, like I remember. So I um I remember when I got my first pocket knife. It was a big deal. It was one of those things where like, because uh, I was in the Cub Scouts and you had to like earn a badge and like get your little you got a card and every time somebody caught you doing something like irresponsible with a knife, they would cut the corner off the card and if you lost all four corners, they took the knife away from you. Mm. Um, my dad gave me a knife. I still have. It's this little. Vic- it's a. It's unfortunately been discontinued. It's called a Victorinox Tinker. I promptly put it in my pocket and took it out into the woods to go like whittle sticks and throw it at things something irresponsible Uh, and I lost it and I went back into my house and I was so so super upset I was on the verge of tears and my parents were finally like what is wrong with you 
Uh, and I told them, like, you gave me this thing, and it was this huge responsibility, and I lost it the very first day, and I'm, like, devastated. So my dad, like, he's like, okay. We're going to go look for it. So we get out our flashlights, because, of course, the sun has gone down. We walk through our backyard into the woods and search for, like, an hour in the dark in the woods for this knife. And I'm, like, beside myself, just <laughs> crying. I'm a hot mess. And then we get back inside, and I'm like, I'm sorry. And my dad's like, it's okay. Like, like no, I'm not going to get you another one. But <laughs> but it's okay. Like, it's not the end of the world. We gave you this responsibility, and you kind of failed. But And then, as he's, like, trying to console me, he hands me the knife because he found it the moment we stepped outside our back door, <laughs> put it in his pocket, and then made me tramp around the woods for an hour. <laughs> oh, that's good. And so I don't really carry them around because I don't want to lose them, but... Um, but this one, it's like 10 bucks and it's beautiful. I've actually given them as gifts because I just think they're so profoundly beautiful in, in how well they are designed and how simple they are. There's a Quaker quote and it's something I'm going to butcher it along the lines of don't make anything unless it's useful, but if it is useful, make it beautiful. That's akin to my favorite design quote. It's, in our book. It. it's a Buckminster Fuller quote. Uh, when I'm solving a problem, I never think of beauty. But when I'm done, if it's not beautiful, I know it's wrong. Boom, shakalaka. I think that's a good place to end. I agree. (laughs) I want to thank you so much for taking time out again. And uh, let's chat again sometime. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And with that, we will call it a week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, be sure to share it with your friends, family, or coworkers. As always, you can find the show notes and full transcript at xdpodcast.com or stalk me on Instagram at xdpodcast. I can't wait to have you back next week, but until then, friends, stay curious. The XD Podcast is part of XD Media, LLC, and is produced and edited by me, Tony Dosat. Hosting and publication of the podcast is through Buzzsprout. 